Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC Nashville. Paul Shaughnessy here. Producer Megan on the six. Cody Saftik on the line. This episode of the Dogger Pass Podcast and all episodes of the Dogger Pass Podcast are brought to you by Prize Picks. Use promo code DOP when making a new account to get a match up to $100 on your first deposit. I owe you a shoey, Cody. Ooh. What a close decision. And we were talking about just before we came online. It's just like... Yawn actually did pretty well, even in the striking exchanges in round three, but he looked so tired. That body language was so bad that it's like, I think the two of the three refs were kind of like, those punches can't mean anything because the guy looks like he's going to die. But he looked like he was going to die like seven and a half minutes into the fight. And he still fought pretty valiantly, you know, landed some decent strikes, got the takedown with 40 seconds left. Uh, I ended up betting it. Um, Right as soon as he got that takedown with like 40 seconds left, there was like plus 240. I'm like, this decision could get greasy. So I lost a little bit of money on the fight. But I didn't invest pre-fight, save my money. My only bet was the shoey bet. Um, you had a hell of a, hell of a, uh, hell of a week, though. You had uh, Semmelsberger was the only guy mm. who uh, shot in the apple pie. Otherwise, had a good first round. <laughs> otherwise, you're dancing. Otherwise, you are yeah. dancing. Yeah, I really wanted to hit the PRP for the fans, obviously. But top three lines, uh, all, all good to me. All good to me. So I'm not one to complain. But yeah, I mean, if the ref stops it or if he doesn't gas out or I don't know. We could have, should have, would have. Not going to stay in the past. We're going to move on. I'll admit, though, man. So last week, I got Roman Kopilov. And as he's about to fight, now you're second questioning everything. You're like, oh, man. Oh, man. Why did I go so high on Kopilov? And then... Pfft, Gets rocked at the end of the first round. Looked good, then got rocked at the end of the first round. Comes back and wins. Then we were high up on Gabriel Bombfeam. I thought he was going to roll. He did. But Bobby Green, right? I'm, we're, we're high up on Bobby Green. I'm starting to second guess it as the fight nears. Gets dropped by Tony Ferguson in the first round. Comes back and wins. Like You're always second guessing it as the pressure amounts. The pressure amounts. So now we get to Alex Pereira, like you said. And I mean, I guess you could hedge out at that point. You absolutely could have hedged out of the the, the bottom tickets. But we had him on the second line, so we needed it. And after the first round, same thing. It's just like you're ripping up the ticket. If you're at the racetrack, you would just ripped up the ticket and walked away, right? But uh, yeah, Pereira fights valiantly, comes back, wins the second. Third round, super subjective. Striking was actually fairly even, but you and I were discussing it before the show. Body language. Body language is a big, big part of it. At the end of the day, judges are human beings. And when you see one guy curled over, huffing and puffing, trying to avoid it, but fight strategically and do well. And the other guys kind of also huffing and puffing, coming forward, throwing bombs, bombs ish, you know, I don't know. subjective nature. This card talking about subjectivity, uh, 12 fights on the card right now. I can make a very strong argument for 10 of the underdogs. The two that I can't will likely win. This is going to be dog city, man. Absolute dog city. Tons of plus money to be had, but very tricky for parlays. 100%. All right. Over the lips, past the gums, look at stomach. Here it comes. Paul Shag with the with the little rubber boot, little rubber boot. Paul haters so. haters don't like it. They don't like the fact that I'm I'm drinking out of something. You know, we, you can never get you can never make everybody happy, Cody. People that's, used to say that's disgusting. You're gonna get sick. Then you switch the boot to something sanitary, and then now they're saying that like it's really soft and I should be 
you know, drinking out of something like Cody does that has like horse manure on it. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. All I know is that we got 12 fights to break down. UFC Nashville main event. We got Corey Sanhagen taking on Rob Font. Corey Sanhagen is a minus 350 favorite. Font can be had for plus 285. Who you got? Yeah, so I'm pretty big on when, when you talk about creating the perfect fighter and if it was a video game and you could add all these attributes. Rob Font striking is as good as anybody striking. It's elite level striking and the numbers that he puts up paul absolutely sickening his fight with cody garbrandt he lands 176 his fight with jose aldo very next fight 149 his fight with marlon vera very next fight 271 significant strikes landed and then he lost his last two fights so people kind of wrote him off not me we bet him against adrian yanez plus money underdog if you can believe that and he starches them. He's very elite in that regard. Takedown defense? See, that's a bit of a question to me. Because Jose Aldo, Marlon Vera, Cody Garbrandt, uh, well, actually not Cody Garbrandt, but Adrian Yanez, Marlon Vera, Jose Aldo, Marlon Marias. none of these guys want to take him down. The guys that did want to take him down succeeded in doing so. Ricky Simone racked up some solid takedowns against him. Cody Garbrandt, who has a bit of a wrestling background. He was a state champion back in high school in Ohio, but certainly not one guy that you would consider like an elite-level wrestler by any stretch. He's able to get him down three times. What Font's able to do to those guys, get back up, make them work, because he's got sickening volume. Now, here's his other thing. Never been knocked out in his career, right? However, been dropped five times in the fights with Jose Aldo and Marlon Vera. Three times against Vera, twice against Jose Aldo. And in both of those fights, he's outstriking his opponent. He's racking up those numbers. It's that he's getting dropped. As you said with the body language, that's what's happening to him. He can put up good numbers, have a good round, use that footwork, use that jab. His jab is magnificent. His speed, his footwork, even at 34 years old, all good. But that big shot lands and he kind of does the stanky leg. You know, that big shot lands and he, and he falls down temporarily. It's hard to get a round back when you're doing that. So if this is just a straight-up kickboxing match, striking affair, Rob Font can hold his his, uh, his own with anybody. Sanhagen's elusive. He's got a nasty jab on him too. But Font would be in it. thing is, it's an MMA fight. And I feel like Sanhagen, since the Aljamain fight, has spent a lot of time working on his offensive wrestling. You saw in his last fight, uh, go out there against Marlon Vera. Pretty much just utilize his wrestling, take him down, neutralize him for most parts. I think his ability to strike with Font in spots and then mix in those takedowns in spots should be that blend that gets him the win. The one little thing that would also tip my hat in his favor is that he's had a full camp, right? Not only has he had a full camp, he's had a full camp getting ready for Umar Nurmagomedov. So mm. he would be in fine shape. And I would imagine that the vast majority of this camp has been wrestling how could it not be right so he's going to be in really good shape he's going to be good to go font meanwhile font can put up sickening numbers font can hold his own font can make this one hell of a, a main event for the nashville crowd but he's on short notice so is he at his best probably not is sandhagen at his best you would think close to so the blend of the striking with the takedowns and on top of that the full fight can't just it's it's enough for me to go Corey Sanhagen but this is a killer main event and you can see it being a close tightly contested striking affair for 15 or for uh, 25 yeah i mean the the short notice for font the fact that he got dropped what five times in between the vera and the aldo fights i took sandhagen by knockout plus 225 um that's Not the only bet it's the only bet I've made so far. It's just like, I kind of think it's, he rushed into the spot. Props to him for taking it. But uh, yeah, you cannot get knocked down that many times. Eventually, a ref just steps in and, and doesn't let you continue. Like, he's been pretty fortunate to be allowed to continue in a bunch of those spots. And I feel like 
at that price, yeah, plus 200 or above, I feel like it's pretty uh, ripe for the picking. So that's where I put my money on this main event. Um, I I respect both of these guys immensely, don't get me wrong. But, uh, yeah, font, short notice. Chin has been leaving him a little bit. He hasn't been knocked out yet, but it's like we've seen signs that it can be exploited. And, I mean, we've seen with Sandhagen, it's like the guy – can throw some like really dynamic strikes to put you out of your element. So, you know, if he lands a flying knee early on, maybe this ref doesn't let uh, Rob Font, you know, survive. So I just thought at that price, it was uh, worth a poke minus three fifty. I mean, if this goes 25 minutes, I can definitely see it being pretty competitive. Rob Font fighting off of the jab and uh sand, like both of these guys would accrue, a lot of significant strikes. It may be one of those really, really greasy decisions if it goes the full 25. But I see Sanhagen knocking him out. Um, yeah, so like even on prize picks, I haven't even played it on prize picks yet, but like I'm kind of leaning towards the under 120.5 significant strikes. Sanhagen, no, no doubt, can get over it. A lot of Rob Font's opponents get well over that number, but. I see Sandhagen knocking him out in the first, probably in the first three rounds, to be perfectly honest. So uh, I'll, I'll be adding that to tickets. I haven't added to tickets yet. I have some tickets that I have added, um, but we'll get there as we break down the show. All right, moving on down, we've got Tatiana Suarez taking on Jessica Andrade. Minus 360 for, Andr- or minus 360 for Tatiana Suarez, plus 290 for Andrade. Andrade is going to be dangerous. I mean, you know me. It's like, I'm a dog hunter, but within reason, Cody. I could never bet against. And I saw, like, CLV opportunities for myself early on in the week. I could have had Andrade at, like, plus 350, plus 340. So I couldn't pull the trigger because I think Tatiana Suarez will get those takedowns, will get those takedowns with ease. And uh, and probably get a submission. I see a plus 125 out there. I haven't bet it yet, but like that's how I see this fight playing out. Andrade is obviously dangerous on the feet, but there's levels to this game when it comes to the grappling. And even though Tatiana had a pretty rough return from injury against Montana De La Rosa, it's like she's still, you know, bit down on the mouthpiece, was able to get that, get that submission in round two. It's like if you hang out at range with Andrade, you're going to eat some big shots. I think she will realize the threat that she has in front of her, and there will be no messing around on the feet. Like she will be going for a takedown from the go. Um, so yeah, sw- you know me, minus three sixties. Like I, I rarely ever bet too much on these types of things. If I was forced to make a bet, it'd be probably the. Ooh, yeah, plus 125 on Suarez by sub. Your thoughts here, bud? Yeah, first of all, it, just the simple money line on it factors into the CF dot model that it's it's right at that tipping point where it's like, ooh, one fight in the last four years. Ooh, didn't look good that good against, or didn't look that good against Montan De La Rosa. Ooh, probably not going to play it. And then you're talking about what's the likely path of victory submission. By the way, I actually agree with you, but plus 125 for a submission prop. Yeah, not that funny. And, also not down with that. So yeah, yeah. There's not a whole lot of ways to attack this. It's not a great parlay piece simply because CF dot model guys happens all the time. And uh and then then beyond that, again, just too wide on the money line. But 
She is the rifle pick. This is what we're going to go with. So Tatiana Suarez is Paul's baby, right? She is women, women's MMA, Islam Makachev, takes everybody down, smish, smish, smish. The only other girl that can really wrestle at an elite level in the division is Carla Esparza, who's made an entire career and two UFC wins or two UFC championship uh, different reigns with her wrestling. Tatiana took her down nine times. Wasn't even competitive. Her at her best was going to smash the entire division and go on to be some great champion. Unfortunately, your knees can only take so much. So yeah, she's had a lot of issues, a lot of lot of different injuries, and 32 years old, still undefeated, still fresh in terms of fight years, but uh, it's only a matter of how much your knees can take. So looks great against the Spars, looks okay against Nina Nunez. That fight actually went off uh, 15 minutes. She looked a little tired by the end, but again, wrestling is at an elite level. And then the four-year-long layoff. So to come back against Montana De La Rosa, she does not look good, okay? She struggles to get the takedowns. She relied on two head and arm tosses, which if you're not Dreykus Duplacis against Robert Whitaker, I don't advise going for those. But uh, again, she doesn't look all that comfortable in there. Striking hasn't gotten a whole lot better. Still robotic, tentative to get hit, rushes the takedowns. Unfortunately, very strong still, is able to throw Montana down. Why Montana gave her so much resistance? One, Montana actually has a wrestling base herself and is an okay grappler. But two, the fight's at 125 pounds. Mm -hmm. So Tatiana's coming off a four-year-long layoff, and she's also taking a fight at 125 pounds. So I think the ring rust would already be a big issue. Then you compound the taking on a naturally larger woman who also has a bit of a wrestling and grappling base. You're not going to look great. So she did what she had to do. She won the first round, largely smothering up against the cage. And then she won the second round, completing the takedown. Risky move going for the guillotine pays off, gets the submission. So now she's coming back a lot closer, not a long layoff, back at 115 pounds, full camp for this fight, supposed to take on Verna Jandaroba, right? Good wrestler, good grappler. So I would imagine that's the game plan. That's what you're going to be doing. Verna jumps out and Andraj is like, who are you going to call? Jessica Andraj. She'll take any fight, anytime, anywhere to her credit but also to her disadvantage because she loses a ton of these short notice fights where she just shows up. She'll fight at 115. She'll fight at 125. She doesn't seem to care, but the weight cuts to 115 are tough for her. And this one's 115 again on short notice. Uh, We'll go back to the Aaron Blanchfield fight. Blanchfield's young, 23 years old, known as a wrestler grappler, had previously struggled in her fight prior to take down a much lesser opponent than Andraj, but came in that fight and her boxing looked mint. Just boxed Andraj up in the first round. Second round, easy takedown. Just ducked under. uh, Time to counter. Ducked under. Takes her down. And once she got on top, Paul, it's not competitive. Like Jessica Andrade is a BJJ black belt and she attempts absolutely nothing. There's no guard retention. She immediately just gets passed into side guard. She immediately, or side control. She immediately just uh, gives up her back, gives up the hook. All of a sudden she's in a rear naked choke and she just taps out. Very next fight against Jan, Janan knocked out uh, 220 into the first round. Didn't look comfortable, returned down to 115. And that's her problem. That fight she looked awful against Jan and she looked awful against Blanchfield. She looked awesome against Murphy. She looked awesome against Amanda Lemos. Awesome against Calvillo. Awful against Shevchenko. Awesome against Chukagian. There's no real in-between. In fact, one time she was looking awful against Rose Namajunas and still came out looking awesome. So when she's in a full camp and she's at her best and she goes out and performs and finishes opponents inside the distance, which is that John Lineker-style forward pressure, boxing, rip to the body, big hooks from the outside, power wrestling, her at her best, yeah, a problem for a lot of people. Her coming in relatively short notice, back down at 115, 
hasn't looked motivated in a while. The UFC keeps hounding this whole, she's the first female fighter to have 25 UFC fights. Dope, dope. But also tons of burnout effect. She's only 31 years old, but she's bounced around from three different weight class, fought every division's top five challengers and every division's champions, held her own sometimes, won a title at one point, but even at 31, 25 fights in the UFC, she just seemed a little burnt out to me. Tatiana, she wants this, had the full camp, wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. Why would you want to stand with Jessica and Draj? It makes no sense. So gas her out by applying that pressure and winning. Uh, I would be more tempted to chase the decision prop over the submission prop because it's bigger plus money. But when Andraj don't show up, man, she packs it in quick. So I'm actually going to agree with you. I think the rear naked choke opens itself up sometime late in the second round. Yeah. I mean, the Blanchfield fight was kind of a big tell. It's like... She got dominated. Is that 125? She mm-hmm. got dominated. Dominated. I mean, I think the... I don't know if Tatiana can do what Blanchfield did on the feet is the is the biggest thing. And you know me. I like... I love Tatiana more than... Fact. Than any other YouTube guy running, running his show on the internet. Uh, she even follows me on Twitter. We're we're not exactly friends. I don't I don't I don't DM her. I'm not like a weirdo creep or anything. But I think from like Are way back in this the weekend? day when I <laughs> way back in the day when I was you know we were a little bit crazier and I was saying crazy things and talking about how she was going to win the title and and yada yada yada. She was like, all right, that's that's a real fan. She's never unfollowed me, so. Um, that's, that's my girl. And I think, yeah, I think that second round against Blanchfield tells me all I need to know about this fight. It's like, I think if Suarez takes her down, she is going to smother her. It's whether she can get that submission in round one or two, but like, I think it's coming. Um, have to take some shots. You probably have to take a little bit of damage to close distance because Andrade can crack, but. The queen, the, the queen is not getting stopped here, Cody, in my humble opinion. Moving on down, we've got Kennedy and, Ju- and Juklu taking on Dustin Jacoby, minus 155 for Kennedy, plus 135 for Dustin Jacoby. Who you got? Yeah, I'll take a dog poke here at Dustin Jacoby at the slight plus money. Reason being, so Kennedy and Jaku, you know what? Very, very long, big man, six foot three with a eight, sorry, six foot five with an 83 inch reach. And I've always really been a, a believer that at some point, especially because he's at a four to seven MA, some point he's going to figure out how to use that reach. Some point he's going to figure out how to use that distance. And he's going to be an absolute prom because he can generate a ton of power for this division. It's just never materialized. Paul, he looks very uncomfortable in these prolonged striking exchanges. He always allows his opponents to close the distance on him. If they want to walk in the pocket, fine, but he doesn't stand on the outside. He generally likes to force a clinch, use elbows tight, uh, tight little elbows, you know, bust his opponent up. And then he's relying on his wrestling a lot heavy these days. When you look at volume per se, his last three fights, the Devin Clark fight, he got hurt bad in the first round. Uppercut from Devin Clark lands, puts him on wobbly legs. Clark just unloads the tank on him. And Kennedy just plays it smart, counters Clark. Such a sloppy first round. And then the second round, Clark's just done and he puts him away. But like not a great performance. Did get rocked early. Didn't look super good in those striking exchanges, especially not against a high level striker. The Ian Kudalaba fight, again, good knockout from him. Crazy fight against a crazy fighter. But I haven't really been able to see him fight other than the, I guess you could say his fight with um, Carlos Olberg, a spot that he was getting largely outstruck early. 
and then he just stays with it and comes back a little bit later. But his cardio, to me, seems a little bit suspect. His volume, to me, is a little bit suspect. He's forcing these grappling exchanges. He switched from being a wrestler, from being a striker to being a grappler, I believe. Justin Jacoby, meanwhile, yeah, he's got that glory kickboxing base. He's come to the UFC, and it's mostly sparring-type situations. He doesn't seem like he's got a lot of zap anymore. There's not a ton of, like, fight-ending power from him anymore, but he's a great sparring-type guy, and he can put up the volume. He's comfortable fighting strikers. His last number of fights, last fight against Azmat Mirzakhanov, Khalil Roundtree, he's in those fights. He should have won the Roundtree fight, who he outlanded 120 to 85, outstruck him in all three rounds judges didn't agree but he trains at denver he's always had good cardio he can put up 100 significant strikes and his takedown defense actually isn't half bad he i think asmat mirzakhanov won like one for seven on takedowns against him he's a big body he's worked with a lot of high level wrestlers and again if you're going to stand in front of him and spar with him he's a good guy he racks up a lot of volume he's got nasty leg kicks and a good jab and i think it gets a big tall opponent against kennedy that jab is going to stay in his face those low kicks are going to slow him down immobilize him uh, Jacoby doesn't like his power's not all the way gone, so I think he's got enough that he could rock Kennedy. We've seen Kennedy knocked out by Da Ung Jung with uh short little elbows, and we've seen him rocked in his last fight in the first round against Devin Clark. So I wouldn't completely outrule a possible Dustin Jacoby knockout, but I more see this thing as like a point style kickboxing match that Jacoby outlands him, lands the low kicks, works him over, and hopefully has the judges side with him. I mean, every single Jacoby fight is just super, super close, and you never really know what it's going to be scored when it goes to the judges. Outside of this, so only take him up plus money. Only take him up plus money. <laughs> I can understand where you're coming from. Um, in terms of like, I think Kennedy's made some pretty big improvements. Being able to have Danilo Marquez on your back for two rounds, it was not ideal by any stretch of the imagination, but he cooked the guy. And he showed that like he's got enough grappling to at least survive against a legitimate black belt. In Danilo is he Marquez. a legitimate black belt? Have you ever looked at him since oh. that fight? Like his entire career has just been just god awful. Danilo Marquez was a one trick pony. But anyways, uh, I just looked him up. He actually went on a little winning streak against an O and O and a nine to six and Jorgen De Castro, of course. But yeah, yeah, I'll, I, I'll I'll let you keep going. But god damn it, man, he lost the first two rounds against Danilo Marquez. That's my trouble with him. I just think that Kennedy's making like some pretty significant improvements in the grappling. Nobody's really like you go through like the, the opponents that Jacoby has faced and he hasn't really taken on anybody who can grapple for anything. Like as about uh, Mirza Khan, I'm not a grappler, like more of a, more of a kickboxer, flashy strikes, that type of thing. Um, he did keep it competitive there. Uh, Roundtree doesn't grapple whatsoever. Da, uh, I mean, he knocked him out so fast, but it's like, Dong Jung doesn't really grapple by any stretch of the imagination. Michael Shayshuk, that guy can't grapple at all, and he's a 185-pounder at this point. Darren Stewart, you go back a few years now, Darren Stewart was able to take him down two times. I don't know. I kind of see this fight playing out like uh, like Kennedy against, against uh, Carl Roberson, where he took him down five times. Uh, he ended up winning by TKO. Uh, I see you... It's a small little poke, Cody. You know me, you know, prop degenerate. I'm ever so slightly leaning towards uh, Njuku on the money line, but I see like a plus 950 on Kennedy by sub, and maybe it's because he got a submission against Devin Clark last time out, so it's like recency bias, yada, yada, yada. I'm probably going to take a little small poke on that. Um, I just think Kennedy actually relies on the grappling here, doesn't, 
want to hang out with the guy who was a glory, glory kickboxer for three. It's not even just like, it's not like Carlos Zolberg where it's just like, this guy can't go at this pace for three rounds. It's like, you know, Jacoby can go that pace. I think his game plan is going to be coming in here, mixing the wrestling and at plus nine fifty, I think it's worth a poke. So Kennedy's going to be the pick. And then Kennedy by sub is like a little small, little, little poke. Um, and, and we'll see how it shakes out. Obviously it's pretty unlikely at, you know, at plus nine fifty, but that's where my money's going to be going on this fight. Moving on down, we got Diego Lopez taking on Gavin Tucker. Diego Lopez minus one eighty favorite. Gavin Tucker could be had for plus one fifty five. I mean, Dare Gavin Tucker. It's been off for so long. It's getting pretty long in the pretty pretty long in the tooth at this point. I don't really know what to expect from him. What I do know is that Diego Diego Lopez came in massive underdog against. Uh, Movzar Evloev. He was throwing up some pretty tricky submissions. Um, Evloev was able to get out because you know he and his last name ends in EV, and uh, the guy's grappling is super super solid. But it's like for short notice, the situation that he was in, Diego Lopez put on a pretty good show. Um, I don't know what to expect from Gavin Tucker, so I'm kind of forced against the wall here, and kind of go with like what you've seen lately. And that's Diego Lopez wins, maybe Diego Lopez by submission, which is like plus 230, um, has my attention. I haven't bet it, but that's that's kind of how I see this fight playing out. What's your take here? Yeah, I'm not going to agree. I honestly think this is probably like more of a bias, a bias pick for me, but I'm going to go Gavin Tucker, but I could very easily see this just being that PRP underdog type pick. Because I don't know what to expect out of him. He's been off for a long time. Even prior to this long layoff due to injuries, he just had a lot of injuries. The guy never fought a whole lot on the regional scene in Canada simply because he was always banged up. Maybe got a fight a year every here and there. Eventually makes the UFC. Been in the UFC for a long time. And again, hasn't had that many fights. So uh, very talented guy. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Southpaw. Nice counter striking. At his best, you saw what he did with uh, Billy Quarantillo. He's a smooth operator. Very talented fighter. Him at his worst, potentially a little bit chinny. You did see Dan Ige knock him out his most recent performance, 22 seconds. That's not a, a great look uh, by any stretch. He's banged up. He's been off for a long time. He's now 37 years old, competing in a, a division that largely relies on speed. And maybe he's just a tad behind. So there's a lot of worrisome red flags for why you shouldn't pick Gavin Tucker. But these are the reasons I ended up actually taking him. When you look at Diego Lopez, big, tall, uh, quirky fighter, but how much is it recency bias from he looked like a goddamn house on fire against Mavzar Evloev? He took the fight on Super Show notice, was the biggest underdog on the card, and then goes out there, slaps him silly in the first round, actually wobbled him and hurt him with his striking, fight goes to the ground, and he throws up a million and one submission attempts. It was some badass stuff. It looked like this kid, 28 years old, UFC debut, promising enough future but but again there's a lot of warning flags with him as well his takedown defense isn't very good yeah he relies on these scrambles and you know has a nasty leg lock game and has all this stuff but he'll allow you to establish top position on him when he was on the contender series against joannis and brito joannis and brito took him down three times pounded him from top and dirty ending to the fight but at no point did he really look good in that fight versus brito you give him a pass because he's 26 and it's joannis and brito back on the regional scene he goes looks good goes to a couple EBI invitationals, spends a lot of time working on his grappling, and then Mavzar is not getting ready for this type of opponent. Mavzar doesn't know what to expect. Mavzar is a 6-1 to favorite. 
There's not a whole lot of footage that he can base his study on. And there's not a whole lot of time to actually study his opponent. So part of that is Lopez catches him off guard in the first round. The rest of the fight, second and third, is him tired, hands low, getting countered all day long, giving up the easy takedowns, and then throwing up these flash submission attempts. Almost getting them. Mobzar does a good job defending, and it's enough to persuade a judge anyways, but to get it right. He's tired. His striking becomes ineffective the longer it goes. You could chalk it up to a short notice, which is fair, but I feel like Gavin Tucker has advantages in this fight. First and foremost, he's also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, so he's got better wrestling, better offensive wrestling. I think he could force his hit and maybe score some takedowns. Once you're on top, you got to mind your P's and Q's, but I think he's equipped to do so. The fight stays standing. He needs to watch himself in that first round because A, he's a lot slower than he probably remembers. B, he's taking on a fast opponent. That's gonna that's just going to make it even worse. Three or C, there's going to be some ring rust for him, so he's going to have to shake that off the first round. But if he survives that first round, eventually I think you're going to see him start to find the mark, chop Lopez up, mix in some takedowns, and just play it safe. Again, I'm chasing plus money on this one with Gavin Tucker, and it would probably be like that PRP pick. Maybe the bottom line before the PRP pick. And and he's my boy. So like again, I think part of that is factoring into it. But uh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the governor to hopefully make a successful return to the UFC and get his hand raised. Uh what do you think of Diego Lopez 40.5 significant strikes? I mean, yeah, he I got 37, 37 against Mozart, and he spent most of that time off of his back. So if you think yeah, if you yeah. think Gavin Tucker can thwart you know, a lot of the submission attempts, 40.5 significant strikes seems pretty doable for Diego Lopez. So I don't mind that. Don't mind that. Yeah, I don't I, mind, I've actually I already don't, added I don't mind that, that to some tickets. Sorry, what? The other, thing, the other thing that I will actually cite on you, and it's part of the reason why I don't have a ton of confidence in the pick that I decided to go with. Plus, Manny, what can you do? But uh, you saw Diego Lopez against Mavzar Evlovev. Striking looked good early. Submission attempts looked good pretty much throughout, but all that looked good early. But keep in mind, he didn't really have much of a training camp. So for this one, if he shows up in better shape, plus he knocks Gavin Tucker out early, which is another possibility. Tucker, been off a long time, coming off, bad knockout loss, an early knockout loss. So maybe that would be the only thing that thwarts you. But if this is a 15-minute fight, even if Tucker wins, that over probably hits. Yeah. I mean, that that Ricky Glenn fight for Gavin Tucker, like, I feel like that was a real, real transition for his career. Career He took a disgusting, disgusting beating in that fight. Uh, I just never really know what to expect from Gavin Tucker um, anytime he comes in. And then now he's coming in off of over a two-year layoff. It's it's really tough to pull the trigger at plus 155. But I I understand where, where you're coming from on a lot of points. Moving on down, we've got uh, Tanner Bozer taking on Alexa Kmore. Minus 145 for Bozer, plus 125 for Kmore. Who you got here, buddy? Yeah, this is another fight that's hard to get a read on simply because, like, what's Alexa Kmore been up to lately? Here's a guy that joined the UFC pretty young, 23, 24 years old. He won on the Contender Series against Fabio Charant with a nasty flying knee. And I don't think it ever looked like he was a legitimate prospect by no means, but a fun little fighter. He's also very young. He's a training partner out of Stipe Miocic at a strong style fight team in Ohio. Good things to like out of him going forward. But he just never really made any improvements, man. He's super robotic. He stands in front of his opponents and his cardio, just not very good. His fight with Justin Ledette wins the first two rounds. Third round, I mean, he's busted up. And Justin Ledette is landing the better strikes. In fact, Joe Rogan is gushing about how he thinks Ledette might have actually won the fight on the basis of 
getting outstruck volume wise, but landing the better shots. Kmore seems like one of these guys on the regional scene, all of his fights, all his amateur fights, first or second round knockouts. The second round knockouts are usually 20 or 30 seconds into the round. His early first four or five pro fights, all quick knockouts. Final contender series, second round knockout. This fight with Ledette's the first one that goes the distance, and he don't look comfortable, man. He loses that third round. Very next fight against William Knight, it's much of the same. William Knight forces his hand with the grappling a lot more, but keep in mind, for the first seven and a half minutes, the first round and a half, it's just them up against the cage for the most part. The last seven and a half minutes, it's Kmore getting down, take or getting taken down four times. He tires out at the midway point, gets taken down four times, loses the decision to Wick, Willie Knight. His fight with Nikolai Negamarianu, the very next one, kills Negamarianu in the first round. 10-8 round. He looks so slick with his counters. Not slick, but just way slicker than Negamarianu. Moving to the outside, using his footwork, and just beating his face off. Uh, busts him up. Lots of damage. Probably a 10-8 round. Second round, you can see he's fatiguing. And all of a sudden, a simple guy like Nikolai, who's just moving forward and clubbing him, works his way back into it, steals the second round, wins the third round, Kmore loses the fight, and now, now he's taken off two full years. So yeah, he's been injured. He pulled out of a John Allen scheduled fight with an injury. You got to be pretty banged up to be passing on a fight of like of that caliber. But yeah, two years. He's still only 27. I'm not going to say he's washed. It's just hard to gauge how good his improvements are. He wasn't really making that many improvements while he was competing actively. So it might be a bit of a stretch to assume he's just making that he's gotten that much better in the two years off, to be honest with you, especially while he's been nursing injuries. To say something like he's a training partner of Stipe Miocic, yeah, that sounds good, but how much does it really mean? How often is Stipe going to the gym and getting hard rounds in? How often is Stipe not? He's got a family. He's got millions of dollars. He's a firefighter. He's got nothing to prove to nobody. Like, how much of how much are you really getting out of that relationship? And how many of the other guys in your gym are big enough to really push you? So I, I'm just not sold on Alexa Kmore in the slightest bit. The thing is, is that he can take one hell of a punch. He's pretty durable. And, and, and yeah, he's got some decent enough boxing. Tanner Bozer is all volume. I think wins this fight down the stretch based on volume, but it's going to be a 15-minute decision. I'm almost certain it's a 15-minute decision, and I think it's just going to come down to what do the judges see. The early part, the first round and a half, it'll be Kmore boxing him up. I think he lands some decent shots. He keeps Bozer realistic. And also, everybody knows the key to being Tanner Bozer is to take him down. And I think this kid probably will say, hey, let me show you some of the improvements I've made over the last two years, and mix in a few takedowns. He's tried to take down pretty much everybody. He does have a takedown against Willie Knight. That is something considering the stature of Willie Knight. I think he probably tries to take Bozer down to at least test it out. At some point, though, if the layoff, that ring rust, the nerve, if anything catches up to him and his gas tank ain't up to snuff, and while we've seen him competing years ago, it never really was up to snuff. Then the thing Bozer keeps the fight standing, stays at the outside, and just leg kicks him all night. The more tired he gets, the slower he gets. Bozer's generally got a pretty good gas tank. And yeah, I know he just got destroyed in his last fight against Ian Kudalaba. But Kudalaba's one of those 50-50 guys, man. Like, he's either going to be awful or he's going to be greatness. And uh, and against Bozer, he was greatness. 205's a better weight class for him. Hopefully, you see the results of that in that fight. I'm hoping Canada goes 2-0 here. It's MMA. You can see them going 0-2. But uh, I'm going to go down to the fights in Nashville. So, uh, yeah, hopefully they go 2-0. You're going down to the fights in Nashville. Going down to the fights in Nashville. Yeah, absolutely. It so only, uh, my buddy it only took you 40 Tim minutes Loy. to reveal that to, to all of us. Yeah, I, 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 I would have thought that was something that you would say off the top. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, I meant to say it right off the top, but then you got doing the shoey and we got talking about Jan Blakowicz, Alex Pereira. Then we jumped right into the show. So I actually slipped my mind, but I'm leaving at like three o'clock in the morning. Uh, like we're recording the show right now. People will be able to see it tonight, I'm sure. And then at like three or four in the morning, I'm going to fly out. And for the record, for the record, I'm Canadian. We've got two Canadians on the card. I don't think there's a single guy from the state of Tennessee on the card, but there's two Canadians. And then here's the ironic part. Well, one guy, uh, Gavin Tucker, it's a 16-hour drive from me right now to where he is in Prince Edward Island. 16-hour drive. The other guy, Tanner Bozer, it's a 34-hour drive for me to Tanner Bozer in Bonneville, Alberta. But me to Nashville, 12 hours. <laughs> like, I'm actually closer to Nashville than I am to either of these guys that are on the far coast of me. So, geographics, right? But uh, yeah, yeah, Nashville is like a second home to me. I love it. Uh, my buddies, Jeff Hobbs and Tim Lloyd, they're bringing me out for Aries Fight Series. It's, this is a, called a Nashville Underground, right? So basically, they do these cards. I'm hoping that like, they'll do them a little more, but once or twice a year, they'll put together like these grunge-type shows. It's super cool, man. You got, hopefully, you'll be able to check it out someday. But essentially, like it's like Bully Beatdown, in a garage type vibe, Def Jam Vendetta, dope ass setup. And it's in Michael Chandler's gym. So Michael Chandler is actually from Nashville. He's not going to be there because he's filming Ultimate Fighter right now, but it's at his gym that he owns, right? Dustin Ortiz is uh, your boy, man, Scramble Master of the World. Dustin Ortiz is one of the head coaches there. It's a dope setup. It's a dope little spot. So they've got Aljamain Sterling's prospect there, Fumi Nakuda. He's a CFFC champion. He's fighting uh, Cleveland McLean. Uh, Chris Ocon, who's on the Contender Series. Diedrich Sanders versus Kellen Van Camp. Dope scrap. So super nice little card. And it's on the Friday. So I'm going to fly out Thursday, which is my birthday, and then uh, go to weigh-ins, check it out, do that shit. And then, yeah, go to the card Friday, call it, and then go to the UFC on Saturday. So I'm super pumped up for it. Yeah, how the how the hell is Nate the Train not on every Tennessee show for the UFC? He's the got plan like, was to bring fan... in Trevor Peak, who's actually from Alabama, but Peak had that Tennessee vibe, and he's like the adopted son of Tennessee. But he just took so much damage in that last fight, so uh, he should probably rest and work on his skills and all that stuff. Keep your hands up, move your head. Uh, and so did Nate the Train. In fairness, he fought what June <laughs> June tenth against Dan Ige, and boy, oh, yeah. boy, I mean, I was on Ige by knockout, and at and the he end almost of did at the end of round two, he almost knocked him out, and. Uh, yeah. Nate Train was just so damn tough. I couldn't even be mad. I was just disappointed. Um, I'm going to side with Kmore. The time off, the fact that he's still young, the fact that he's been fighting in this division for a long time. And I think you may have overrated because you have, you know, you have people to see, people to talk to. You, you are much more in the, the MMA scene in Canada than I am. I think you may have overrated Tanner Bozer's uh, durability a little bit. Um, the most significant strikes he's ever landed in any UFC fight was against Daniel Spitz um, on the what the, on the Contender Series way back when. Hasn't been exactly the greatest run. Uh, Kmore has eclipsed like a hundred significant strikes. Training with Stipe. Stipe's, you know, finally back in camp, getting ready for a title fight. I'm gonna lean ever so slightly to Kmore, but I don't think I'm actually gonna pull the trigger on an actual bet. So. I, 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 I will say probably this. me. Yeah, I know. Who knows? I will say this. When you're when you're Tanner Bozer, it's like, man, he hasn't racked up any big numbers. It's like, okay, these are his losses, right? So surreal gone, super hard to hit. 
Andre Arlovsky. Man, he should have won that fight. Total bullshit. But I think he respected him too much. But dude, Ilir Latifi, Rodrigo Nascimento, and then getting clubbed out quick by Ulan Kudalaba. They all just took him down and held him down. Like that's his kryptonite. His guys that take him down and hold him down. And so far, all Alexa Kmore has done is just rock him soccer robots. So you're you're not you're not wrong for going Kmore and getting that plus money. I think maybe, maybe let the first round go by and then take a live poke at Tanner Bozer if Kmore starts to gas and you can get closer to even. But uh this is just a greasy fight all around. A close fight, greasy fight. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you like Tanner Bozer over 57.5 significant strikes on prize picks. Yeah, because Alexa, anybody who fights Alexa Kaymore is going to land. Man, he's just there to get hit. He's going to hit you, but he's he's there to get hit. And then his cardio is just not good enough to hold up. So Bozer's getting cut and Kaymore's getting cut. The loser of this fight's cut. I don't really see any way around the loser of this fight staying. Bozer's on a terrible run. They've dropped down to 205, gave him a little bit of life. And he got smoked by Ian Kudalaba. If he loses to Alexa Kmore, it's just it's over for him. I like the guy. I'd like to see him stay in the UFC, but they're just they're not going to keep him around. And then Kmore's lost his last two fights and been off for two years. So he loses to Tanner Bowser. So what you're going to get is two guys that are desperate for a win, and that should lead to this over. Did you say fifty six and a half? Fifty seven and a half. Fifty seven and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully hit the over. Hopefully hit the over. All right, let's move on. We've got uh, Ignacio Bahamandes taking on Ludovic Klein, minus 225 for Bahamandes, plus 190 for Ludovic Klein. Who you like here, bud? Yeah, so to me, it feels like Ignacio Bahamandes top ticket play, and then in thinking that, probably going to be way greasier than he needs to be. But I think he's got Klein's number. When you look at Ludovic Klein, again, we just talked about guys that are lower output because you and I, similar eye in that regard. Ludovic Klein is super low output, man. Like, he's a technician. He looks to counter him with one-twos, stays at the outside, nasty left-high kick, you know, a quick left-hand counter shot. But he's not throwing in combinations, and he gets dog-walked a whole bunch. Likes to fight off the back foot, likes to kind of play pretty and then mix in takedowns. No point. These are his fights, you know, goes to the decision with Trezano, 45 landed. Got subbed by Nate Landwehr in the third. He had landed 42. Uh, Devontae Smith wins a split decision, should have been unanimous, but won a split decision over Devontae Smith, had landed 60. Mason Jones, which was his best performance in the UFC, had landed 50. And then his last time out, which might be one of his worst performances in the UFC against Jai Herbert, lands 47. So, so 60 is his career high in six UFC fights, and it's against Devontae Smith, man, who obviously not with the promotion any longer so it's hard to get behind Ludovic because in Ignacio he's going to fight a guy that lands on the reg reg 100 significant strikes the last fight he landed 99 but keep in mind his last fight he was coming off a year-long layoff who knows who knows the guy's got volume for days he's got output for days so it really does come down to the takedown defense can Ludovic Klein mix in the takedowns force him up to the ground and kind of uh hold some position but again he's kind of low output with that as well He's taken down one guy in his last four fights. That was his last fight against Jai Herbert, who I'm not very high on. And he wasn't able to hold him down. The biggest problem, though, against Jai Herbert is that Jai Herbert's six foot one with a 77 inch reach, and he just had no ability to break through to the inside. He gets boxed up by Herbert, uh, loses the fight for no reason. A low blow, accidental. Why would anybody intentionally kick somebody in the groin? A bullshit low blow in, uh, foul for Jai Herbert leads to a point deduction, and uh, and that's what allowed him to get a draw out of that fight. Otherwise, most people, I think if you go on like MMA decisions, 
it's either there's only two options, bro. It's the draw or it's the it was a 30-27 decision and should have been a 29-27 because of the point deduction. So again, Jai, Her- Her- Jai Herbert outstruck him in that fight, did a good job of getting back up. But to me, it was the reach and that height. Now, Ignacio Bahamanda is not a 77-inch reach, only a 75-inch reach, but he's six foot three, Paul. He has an eight-inch height, uh, eight-inch height advantage over Ludovic Klein. So 6'3 versus like 5'7, that's going to be big. I think Klein's going to struggle to get into the inside. He's going to struggle with the constant volume, the constant teeps up the middle. If he does get a takedown, I think Ignacio Bahamandez is filling out this frame for the weight class. He's getting big. He's getting strong. Still only 25 years old. And he trains out of that VFS Academy who uh, gets in a lot of time with Bilal Muhammad over in Chicago. So, And then the kid's a legitimate prospect, getting better. And again, I like what I see out of him. He can damage you. He can outvolume you. He's got heart for days. And even in that Roosevelt Roberts fight, one second left on the clock, he's still throwing spinning hook kicks. He's faced a little bit of adversity, some setbacks, but that's all good for business. So in this fight, I think he beats up Klein. The thing is, I could also see Klein staying to the outside, counterpunching, busting him up and making him bleed a little bit, being down on the numbers, but mixing in a few takedowns, making it close, surviving. And then all of a sudden, am I, am I biting my nails, waiting for some, some closely contested decision? That's what I don't want. But if Ignacio does what he's capable of, and Klein does what he's capable of, I think Ignacio is the better fighter. He wins this one. Yeah, Ignacio is enormous for the weight Huge. class. And the question, as as you said, it really comes down to is like, can Ludovic Klein secure a ton of takedowns here? Like he's uh, the reach is actually kind of surprising between the two of them because you have five foot seven versus six foot three, um, and the fact that he only has what like a three or four inch reach advantage is kind of surprising. But like Ignacio uses every little bit of his frame. Um, and the volume is is off the charts. Like on prize picks, eighty three point five significant strikes. I I mean I already took at eighty one and a half. Like when it first opened, they moved it to two strikes. Like whatever, it's two strikes. Like if this goes fifteen minutes, I expect him to get close to a hundred. Um, I think that's a half decent edge at, at the very least. Yeah, ninety nine against Trey Ogden, one hundred and twenty six against Rongju. 105 against Roe Roberts. It's like if if we can get three rounds of action or at least two and a half rounds of action, I think over 83 and a half significant strikes is 100% in play. Um, my only concern whatsoever with laying the minus 225 is maybe Ludovic, you know, the Trezano fight being able to secure four takedowns, win the fight that way. That's the That's the only concern that I have here. Otherwise, I think Ignacio just beats him up accrue significant strikes and it'll be a pretty easy decision victory for Ignacio Bahamandes. So um, that's where my head's at there. Sounds like we're pretty much on the same page. Moving on down, we've got Jeremiah Wells taking on Carlston Harris. Jeremiah Wells minus 125 favorite. Harris can be half a plus 105. Who you like here? Yeah, so I'm actually going another underdog here in uh, Carlston Harris. Um, I, again, with Jeremiah Wells, like I'm just I'm not I'm not super confident in him. He's made his UFC debut. He's just shy of his 35th birthday, right? And he had been fighting for 10 years as a professional, and yet he had 10 fights under his belt. So he just he was never really active on the regional scene before he jumps into the UFC. And then since he's been in the UFC, the results have been in there, but there's some question marks big time in all of them. Big debut against Worley Alves, bomb rushes him. Uh, when I think one for five on takedowns in that fight. But uh, just clubs him, puts him away. Nice little win. He was fighting at a pace that nobody could sustain. But it's his debut. He's on short notice. He went for it. Huge underdog. Got the win. That's dope. 
Then the fight with Blood Diamond. People will remember it as an easy Wells first round submission. But again, Blood Diamond's doing pretty good in the striking exchanges, beating him up standing. And Wells goes, let me just make sure I get this 100% because I don't want to hurt him too bad. One for five. One for five on takedowns against Blood Diamond. It's a, a really bad look, man. It's a bad look, but eventually does get him to the ground. He's a Gracie, uh, Henzo Gracie, BJJ black belt out of Philly. Philly Henzo, great gym, solid guy, former Paul Felder training partner. He gets the win over low-level guys. The fight with Corbin McGee, he knocks him out before the fight starts, uh, even starts, really. But McGee, 40 years old, done at this point. His fight with Matthew Selmsberger is the greasiest fight you've ever seen. So to this point, you've seen him smoke out Warley Alves quick. You've seen him struggle to take Blood Diamond down, but then get him down and smoke him out quick, and then uh, smoke Court McGee quick. But like, what about a prolonged period? And that one's got tons of red flags. He gets dropped by Matthew Selmsberger twice. Don't think his chin's all that good. Selmsberger lets him off the hook. He got six takedowns on him, but it was all like him getting wobbled, him getting rocked, him getting a takedown, and then him just holding on top. Six for 10 on takedowns in that fight. You saw Matthew Summelsberger limitations, obviously, this past weekend. The only pick I got wrong. And what the biggest takeaway, not from the Wells fight, I didn't watch the Wells fight and think, geez, Matthew Summelsberger is really not good. The, watching that Euros managed fight, dude, it was pretty clear. Matthew Summelsberger is not really good. So for Wells, he gets floored twice. A bad judge probably jumps in there and steps it, or a bad ref probably jumps in there and steps it, stops the fight. There are spots where he's getting rocked. He's relying on these, these, these reactionary takedowns to force Matthew Semmelsberger down and then mostly just lay and praise him. Over the course of 15 minutes, he landed 36 significant strikes, and that's actually his career high in the UFC because everything else is a quick finish. So to bet him as a favorite's not something I would feel great about. I would probably prefer to try to fade him. 36 years old for the record. And go the other way. Carlson Harris, also 36 years old. But man, there's a lot you can like about Carlson Harris. I liked him prior to coming to the UFC. Whereas Jeremiah Wells fights 10 times in 10 years. It's relatively low level of competition before jumping in. Yeah, not the case with Carlson Harris. This guy's a badass. Prior to coming to the UFC, he beat Jolton Luderbach. Stud. He beat Michelle Pereira, currently in the UFC. Wellington Terman, eventually made his way to the UFC. He beat uh, Saigit. Is a Gakmaev, who was 17 and 1 at the time, is currently 22 and 2, is an absolute stud of an animal of a man. Jumps in the UFC, has a win over Impa Kinsanganai by first round knockout. He's a problem, man. Not only is he a problem, he's got a 77 inch reach on him, and he's super unorthodox with his striking. Comes out of Evolution Tai, they're known for that off rhythm striking, off rhythm beat. And with that 77 inch reach and the power he can generate, he clips guys, he hurts them. He's got a nasty front choke again because of the long ass arms. Good Anaconda, solid submission game, BJJ black belt. And whereas I'm not totally sold on his ability to fight multiple rounds, coming off a decision win over Jared Gooden, where his cardio held up. So this fight with Wells, both of their cardios are probably not great, but I would actually give the advantage to Carlson Harris. Both of them Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts, slight edge to me towards Wells, but not enough so that he's going to hit a quick submission. And I hope he's just not going to lie him down. And if this thing stays standing and Wells struggles to take him down, the way he struggles to take Blood Diamond down... Carlson Harris is going to chop him up. And if you thought Semmelsberger had power, we'll wait until Carlson Harris touches him. So uh, I'm going to go with the underdog play here and probably an inside the distance type of pick as well. I like it, bro. I like it. I like where your head's at on that. A um, lot of steam has come in on Carol Carlson Harris. This opened up at like minus 200 plus 170. And uh, early action is coming in. I think it's kind of one of those situations where it's, uh, you have the wrong fighter favored. Um, yeah, the Semmelsberger fight was kind of a big eye-opener. I was on Wells there, 
But it's like at no point until they read the final scorecards did I feel good about oh, that bet whatsoever. It was greasy. He was lucky to survive. Yeah, as you said, like lots of judges do not let you survive in that spot. Um, and like, or not judges, uh, referees. And like, if somebody stepped in in a couple of those spots, like it would not have been, you know, people would have complained on Twitter because people always complain on Twitter. But it's like it would not have been outside of the realm of what we usually see on a week to week basis. So um, I think, yeah, a lot of the points that you say are, are well founded and. Uh, Wells has shown that he can go three rounds, but it's like if you go back to like some of his regional level tape, it's like we've seen him like you know tire out when he really explodes early. So I like Harris, but maybe you know I'll, I'll take a little bit of Harris early. It won't be a big bet or anything, but it's it could be a good like live spot too. It's like Jeremiah Wells is super super dangerous in the first five minutes. And then he kind of goes into like, you know, lay and pray and slows down a little bit um, in rounds two and three. Like we haven't seen high intensity, hence the volume from him over the course of a three round fight in the UFC. So, uh, yeah, Carlston Harris for me as well. We got uh, sorry. I skipped over my my bout order went out of order. I think I'm going to blame the shoey for it. It's Kyler Phillips takes on your boy, Rowney Barcellos. Kyler Phillips is a minus 210 favorite. Rowney can be had for plus 180. Your thoughts? Yeah. Okay. So on one hand, you've got my boy, Rowney Barcellos, who I never go against. I did in his last fight. I was hoping he wasn't going to lose that badly, though. Woof. And I mean woof. But yeah, traditionally, I like Rowney Barcellos. He's extremely well-rounded. Again, 36 years old, fighting at 135. Going to catch up to you. Everybody's so fast in this division that some point, you know, you're going to start getting hit. At some point, that durability is going to evade you. But, yeah, his boxing is super technical, throws in combinations, tight guard. Uh, could move his head, I guess, a little bit more, but has good footwork. Seven-time member of the Brazilian national wrestling team, BJJ Black Belt, competition Black Belt, did well there as well. Very physically strong, always shows up in good shape. And really, until that last fight against a stud of a man and Nurmagomedov, yeah, had shown some solid durability. Questionable ring IQ at times. I think sometimes he has advantages over his opponents and he doesn't utilize them. Sometimes he should mix in an offensive takedown here and there that he just really won't. Sometimes he, not gun shy because his volume is pretty good, but almost just kind of stares at his opponents. So with Rowney, Rowney's been an apple pie shitter at times for him. He lost to Timor Valiev and Victor Henry in fights he could have won probably, but fighting a bad game plan. The flip side of that, Kyler Phillips has got it all. He's got all the tools, but I think he's a prime apple pie shitter, just waiting to shit in the pie. And who better, who better to go out there and knock off Kyler Phillips than Rowney Barcellos, who him, he himself has done it a few times. And that's what I'm going to go with, actually. So again, Kyler Phillips is the complete package. Even now, he's only 28 years old. He's coming off a layoff due to injury, but he's still fairly young, and he's very, very explosive. He's out of one of my favorite gyms, the MMA Lab in Arizona, Great coaching staff, you know, uh, Benson Henderson, former UFC champion, John Crouch, very, very solid guys in the room to work with. Obviously, Sean O'Malley came out of the MMA lab. I think he still spends most of his time there. Solid, solid group of guys to work with for sure and getting better. He's very explosive. He's very athletic. He kills distance like nothing, has a very nice blast double leg from the outside, big, big power, nasty elbows from the inside. Moves well, good-looking kid, complete package. So what's there not to like about him? But then you see most of his fights generally end early. The fights that he can't finish early and adversity starts to pile up, he doesn't face it all that well. 
His fight with Song Yudong really looks good in high insight, but at the time he's taking on a 23-year-old Chinese prospect who's yet to really work on that takedown defense. And he does win the first two rounds, but in the third round he gets outstruck 26 to 13, backing up the entire time, tired, curled over, loses the third round to Song Yudong. So wins the fight, and again, that's a solid, solid win, one that aged very well. But lost, won the first two rounds using that explosiveness and that quickness and that 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 big shot from the outside. But you could see the gas tank start to wear out. Then his fight with Roli and Peva. So I lost a lot of money on that fight. He's taking on a flyweight, and uh, it's a 10-8 first round. How could it not be? He absolutely murders Roli and Peva in the first round. Kills him pull, p- pillar to post. But then there's like a minute left in the... Or sorry, the round ends. They go back to the stools. They come out for the second. And all of a sudden, geez, Kyler Phillips? He didn't look all that good. And Kyler Phillips' wrestling didn't really seem all that good. He gave up two takedowns to Roli and Peva, a former flyweight. He bounces to the outside. He doesn't commit to any of his strikes. His volume falls off drastically. He loses the second and the third round. I even admit, and I had a lot of money on it. He lost the second and the third round. It should have been a draw because of the 10-8 first round. But they didn't give it a 10-8 first round, and they score the fight for Oli and Peva. But here are the red flags there. One, he just gassed out again, just like he did against Song Yudong. The later the fight goes, no good. He gave up two takedowns to Oli and Peva. He didn't want to commit to any of his strikes. And it seemed like outside of that, that flash of brilliance in the early, he, he, there just wasn't any real substance there. So then you go to his fight with Marcelo Rojo. Yeah, not a great fight. Not a great fight. Looks good early, takes him down. But when Marcelo Rojo is getting back up to his feet, when he's scrambling and getting back up and beating you in the striking exchanges and moving you back in the second round and and takes you into a tight third round where he does submit Marcelo Rojo in the third round, not a good look. You know what else wasn't a good look? Three for eight on takedowns against Marcelo Rojo. He went four for nine on takedowns against Roli and Peva. He went, uh, I guess, three for five against Song Yudong. Again, to me, that one was a while ago. He'll shoot a lot of takedowns, but it's not it's not as if he's got effective quick takedowns smother you for the whole round. Like he just he he scrambles too much, he moves too much. And what happens with these really explosive guys is the more you put that heat to them, they melt. And in his case, he melts, man. So with Raoni, Raoni, who's a better wrestler on paper that Kyler Phillips has fought than Raoni Barcellos? Marcelo Rojo, Roli and Peva? Cameron Els, Gabriel Silva, James Craig, get out of here, dude. He's taking on a guy that's got legitimate wrestling, has taken on a bunch of scary Russians, and uh, and I think he's going to have problems there. Best grappler he's ever fought is Rowney Barcellos. Best striker he's ever fought. Again, you're taking a young Song Yudong out of the equation because it does look really good on paper. I, I think Rowney's the toughest guy he's ever fought. He's got three-round cardio. He's got to fight a good game plan, uh, but he's got nothing to lose. He's coming off a loss. He was supposed to fight Miles John. Like, I don't know, what was that, a month ago? Miles John pulled out. So Rowney, I don't know, extended camp, but probably in good shape. And he's got to go out there and do his damn thing against Kyler Phillips. So I've got I've got faith in him to get the job done. Plus money, I would give it a shot. But you're going to get way better plus money after the first round because mm-hmm. Kyler Phillips is an absolute problem. And if Rowney's chin's still suspect, yeah, Kyler Phillips maybe melts him in the first round. But if it gets out of that first round, Rowney's going to work his way back into this dish. You know... You make a lot of good points there. It's really hard for me to like argue against you on a whole bunch of that stuff. Um, yeah, Kyler Phillips has some like flashy techniques early, but we've seen time and time again when he when he tires out, when he gasses out a little bit, he re- relies on that wrestling. And outside of Hollabaugh, nobody has taken Rowney down. I mean, you you talked about Rowney's. Sometimes Rowney yeah. doesn't you know doesn't lean on his offensive wrestling nearly enough as he should. 
But uh, outside of that, it's like nobody's able to take him down. Now, I mean, U- or, uh, Cousin Umar probably could have taken him down if he wanted to, but he didn't really, you know, go after that. He's like, I'm just going to knock this guy out anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah, plus 180. I see it even like the market's growing a little bit. It's just like I, I, I could never see myself pull the trigger on minus 210 for Kyler Phillips. So clear dogger pass situation. Seemed like you had something to say. Yeah, no, just, you said it best. He's been taken down by one guy in his UFC career. It was his debut. It was five years ago, Kurt Holuba, and Kurt Holuba got 38 seconds of top control out of it. So, like, yeah, it's been good for him. And then maybe Umar Nurmagomedov could have taken him down, sure. Victor Henry's an excellent wrestler out of uh, the catch wrestling gym over in California, CSW, Josh Barnett and those guys. His fight with Saeed Nurmagomedov, as you said, should use his offensive wrestling more often. It's a 1-1 fight late in the third, and it's like, Rowney, what are you doing? Boom, gets the takedown. Could have done it all along. Didn't do it all along. But he won that fight, taking down a legitimate guy in Saeed that went on to some pretty solid things. So, Rowney can do it. I know he can. He just he just got to go there and put it together. And uh, you know I'm like his biggest fan. I don't think I've ever seen him live in person. So, I'm going to go see him down in Nashville. All right, we got uh, Billy Quarantillo taking on Damon or Damon Damon. I was watching Sadiq. Yus- I was watching Sadiq Yusuf's uh, video, I believe, and he called him Damon, which was kind of funny. Damon Jackson, uh, Quarantillo is a minus one eighty favorite. Uh, Damon Jackson it can be had for plus one fifty five. I mean, I'm, I I think this generally comes down to like we've seen Damon Jackson sometimes show up. And he just puts an absolute hurt on you, which is definitely possible early in this fight. But it's like it, this fight seems very, very much like a very typical Quarantillo fight. Maybe the round one is not too pretty, but it's like the guy just wears on you. The I, I don't know if he's going to be leaning on any sort of, you know, takedowns wrestling. Here's like that Gavin Tucker fight from way back when is a little bit concerning. It's like maybe Damon Jackson can employ that type of game plan. But over the course of three rounds, the type of volume that this guy puts on you is like there's very, very few people um, who can keep up with it. And Damon Jackson, from you know, from most of his career, I haven't seen you know he's not gonna like show up here and put on a you know a knockout like th- throw out a knockout like like we saw with Edson Barbosa, which like Billy Q just wasn't ready for any of that i like quarantillo to win quarantillo maybe in the late markets but quarantillo over 72.5 significant strikes on prize picks uh looks ripe for the taking to me what's your take here yeah yeah again this is a version this is a fight where it's what version of the guy's going to show up because both men at their best going to have a lot of advantages here bill quarantillo like you said i think he's got the durability advantage he's got the cardio advantage he's definitely got the volume i think he's got the speed as well and then with damon jackson yeah he's fairly rugged man he's got decent takedowns and when he does take you down he's got some solid top control but again this is another good live betting opportunity because it's a fight i expect one man to win as it progresses and that guy being billy q damon jackson does have a lot of skills bjj black belt decent enough boxing but his durability isn't great and you've seen some early knockouts from him he's coming off a knockout loss to you know a tough guy in dan Inge, but all the same a little bit older now at 34 years old coming off a knockout loss had some durability issues earlier in his career he's probably going to look to wrestle and neutralize billy thing with billy though is that 
if you can take him down and neutralize him, that's sure. Well, sorry, taking him down, that's one thing. Lots of guys take him down. Neutralizing way harder because he's also Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt and he scrambles, 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 gets back up to his feet and puts a pace on you. So if you're going to beat him, you probably got to beat him over 15. Unless you're Edson Barbosa and you're going to soar like a goddamn glorious eagle through the air with a knee and knock him out. Aspinil dare you should about Edson Barbosa's knees. Yeah, okay, well, th- that could possibly happen, sure. But outside of that, like Shane Burgos landed like 162 on him over 15. Billy can take one hell of a punch. And so Damon Jackson, outside of a quick little flash knockout, I think he's going to have to fight him for 15. And the last time you've seen him kind of get extended, he took on Dan Argueta. Dan Argueta turned out to be pretty okay. But he took the fight on like three days notice up a weight class, lost the first two rounds to Damon Jackson, and then gave him hell, gave him heat, gave him everything he can handle. Damon Jackson survived that third round. Man, not a not a real good look. And therein lies the problem. This guy's a guy, Damon Jackson, a lot of finishes, but he's had a lot of fights in the UFC. And these are the numbers. Him versus, uh, say, Levon Makashvili went three rounds. So 44. These are just the fights that went the distance, I guess. But 44. Well, I guess Mursad, he subbed him in the third, but he landed 12 into the third round. Against Charles Rosa, went 15. He landed 41. Kamala Kirk, he subbed him in the second, 32. Dan Argueta, went 15, 32. His fight with Dan Ige, he had landed 36. But, yeah, he's low output. And if you want to talk about the Dan Ige fight, the first round, Ige, way faster, way sharper, doubles him up. The second round, Damon Jackson realizes there's a speed advantage, realizes he's losing, kind of goes YOLO and tries to force his hand. That's what leads him to get it caught and get knocked out. So, to me, Billy is a guy that lands routinely over 100. Damon's a guy that's never landed more than like 50 in a UFC fight, and he's had a whole bunch of them. So if he don't knock Billy out quick, if he doesn't get that quick finish, 100% the work rate is going to get to him. And if he got tired against Dan Argueta, who's good, but is a weight class under and taking the fight on short notice, and you just basically held on to him, like it's not going to work against Billy. So Again, you probably get a better live money bet on him after the first, after a couple minutes into the first, maybe, when it when Damon Jackson holds his own early. But in a war of attrition, Billy Q generally wins, and uh, and I think he's going to do that here. All right, we got Jake Hadley taking on Cody Durden. Hadley, a minus 200 favorite. Durden can be had for plus 170. I think this fight really, like, can Cody Durden... Is he the better wrestler? Is he able to control those yes. exchanges? Because that's is he able to take and control Jake Hadley or take him down and control him? I mean, Nasimento is a super, super solid grappler all the way around. Being able to go three rounds with Alan Nasimento is a nice little, even though he lost that fight and you know wasn't able to do all that much, just being able to hang out on the ground for three rounds is not a bad look for Jake Hadley, like in hindsight being 20-20. Um, but yeah, Mitch Raposa was able to take him down twice on the contender series. Carlos Candelario was able to take him down one time. Um, obviously you just, you know, Straight Malcolm Gordon's going to do Malcolm Gordon things. And if he eats a big shot, he's going to go bye-bye. Um, but Durden's got 11 takedowns against Charles Johnson last time out. I think a lot of the times we used to talk about this guy and we said that like his cardio wasn't there, but it's like being able to wrestle somebody, take him down 11 times over the course of 15 minutes. Like that takes a lot of energy and he was able to do it last time out. Like the, if, if Cody Durden can take these, this fight to the ground, neutralize it, make it ugly. I understand why a lot of people move this line for like minus 150 all the way to minus 200, but it's like now that it's got to minus 200, I wonder if Cody Durden can like, 
keep this fight really ugly, get a bunch of takedowns, hold the fight up against the cage, and, and squeak out a really, really gross like split decision victory here. So I'm interested to hear what you say. I don't have... I'm leaning towards Durden right now. What's your take here? Yeah, okay. So, again, this is underdog city of a card, and I think Durden is one of those underdogs. I am going to take Jake Hadley, but I'll be the first one to admit it. Minus 200 doesn't look super appealing. And I know I've said this about a couple fights, but 100% this is a live bet opportunity to get a better price on Jake Hadley after he loses the first round, presumably. And then I just I think he's going to beat Durden down the stretch. He's either going to beat him, uh, you know, maybe he goes to the body like he did against Malcolm Gordon. He's got way better boxing, way better power, way better combinations. If it stays standing for any period of time, he wins it. Mm-hmm. He's just got to make Durden work early and tire. And so, and I think he's going to be able to do that. The other thing with Cody Durden is when he loses, it's like these like he'll make like one lapse of judgment, one mistake, and it costs him the entire fight. So, you know, him versus Jimmy Flick, he allows Jimmy Flick to hit him with a flying triangle choke. And, uh, you know, just one bad mistake, him versus Muhammad Makayev, he gets shocked out the gate with the flying knee, he shoots a takedown, ran into a guillotine choke. Those little spots of him losing by submission also lead me to believe that Jake Hadley's got a live opportunity to hit a submission prop. Jake Hadley's got 10 pro wins, half of them by way of submission. Triangle choke win over Carlos Candelario, six setup where Carlos Candelario shot the takedown right into the triangle choke. Nasty, nasty little setup. Only man to submit Carlos Candelario, who's fought some good guys. Went the distance with Tatsu Tyra. Very solid takedown, or sorry, a submission defense from Candelario. And Hadley subs him pretty quick. 26 years old, still young, still getting better, but he's got a very quick opportunistic submission game. He's got some nasty boxing standing. It's the takedown defense. It is a bit of a problem. Tagir Lumbekov, sorry, uh, against Alan Asimeno, taken down, control. That's the difference. Alan Asimeno has some takedowns, but he's got nasty top game, nasty control, high-level BJJ black belt. Cody Durden doesn't have that. Cody Durden takes Charles Johnson down 11 times because Charles Johnson got up 10 times. So the scrambles, all that work rate, making him work for another takedown, takes you down, Hadley gets back up. I think the cardio favors Hadley. I think the striking favors Hadley. I think the submissions favor Hadley. The wrestling and that grit does favor Cody Durden. Now, Cody Durden, maybe he's got suspect cardio, but you're right. His last couple of fights, he's digging deep. His cardio is looking a lot better. Two problems here. Problem number one, Cody Durden's taking this fight on short notice. So if he's not in excellent shape, which he's going to need to be to ground Hadley for the course of these two of the three rounds, short notice makes you a little bit worried. Thing number two, he's short notice replacing Tagir Ulambekov. So if you're Jake Hadley and you're getting ready for a fight with Tagir Ulambekov, Khabib's boy, Islam's boy, been hanging out in the, the, the mountains of Dagestan with these guys since he was a child, yeah, you knew you were going to wrestle and you knew you were going to get back up and you knew you were going to take this guy into deep waters and you knew you were going to push this guy. And now they say, do you want to fight Cody Durden instead of Tagir Ulambekov? You say yes. So uh, yeah, two to one, I do not like. I do not like, but tempted to get, you know, a little bit daring and maybe go with the submission prop, but uh, otherwise Hadley, Hadley inside the distance. Hadley by submission. Let me just look at the market right now. Hadley inside the distance is plus 120. Hadley by submission. My God. Who's got it? not that greasy it's not it's not as crazy as you think it is no they're tighter on their submission props these days they don't make it worse tight on this one it's uh i mean because he because he had the submission against candelario 
So best on market right now at the point of recording is plus 225. Um, I could see it. I could see it. All right, moving on. We've got uh, Sean Woodson taking on Dennis Bazookia. Woodson, a minus 180 favorite. Bazookia can be had for plus 155. What a weird week for Sean Woodson. Um, this is, what, his third opponent just this week. He was supposed to take on Steve. That fell through. He's supposed to take on Myron Santos, who I actually watched a little bit of tape on Myron Santos, and I was just like, ooh, this looks like an underdog who has a shot because Sean so Woodson super, Santos super tall. Yeah. And it's just like just the yeah. highlights and the, the, the videos I was watching on Santos, is like this guy look, just looks like a, like, a, like a Brazilian Muay Thai leg kick specialist. And I'm like, those chicken legs, those chicken legs are just asking to be kicked on Sean Woodson. But like he had visa issues. Sorry, Butler was in between Steve and and Myron Santos. And then so Bazooka, this is his fourth opponent. Yeah. So this is his fourth opponent in literally like a week. Um Bazookia was on contender series, ended up losing to uh to Melsick, was able to take him down a couple times and then has went back to the regional scene, basically fought cab drivers. Like, none of these guys that he's fighting have, like, legitimate records or anything like that. You know, step up and in. We need somebody on short notice. Props to him. Um, and Melsick has proven that he's, like, a half-decent fighter. So, it's like, losing to him on Contender Series doesn't look so bad. Um, so, welcome to the UFC. And it's like, you look at w- Woodson's entire career, it's just like, everybody's been able to take him down. So... If Bazookia, short notice, is able to step in here, put at least two of three rounds together where he's able to take him down and control Woodson, I think there's a path to victory there. I don't know if there's one. it's one that I'm going to be able to pull the trigger on, but um, I, I think Woodson could be exploited, and I'm not going to be doing anything serious with this fight until I see weigh-ins because, you know, Woodson against Julian Arosa came in. He's so big. Like, he's, what, like six foot two, fighting 145 pounds. Um, uh, the Arosa fight, he came in four pounds heavy, obviously botched the weight cut, and he absolutely fell off of a cliff later in that fight, ended up getting submitted. Um, I don't know how many more times this guy can cut all the way down to 145 pounds, being as tall as he is. I, don't know, I, I feel like the path to victory is there for Bazookia. The biggest question that I have is, like, He's taking this on such, such short notice. Like, what type of shape is he in coming into this? Like, the path is there. Lean on the wrestling. You're giving up so much reach and all of that. Um, is he is he going to be able to fulfill it? I'm not so sure. I'll pick Bazookia for the upset, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull the trigger. What's your take here? Yeah, I got mixed feelings on this one. So with Sean Woodson, I've always been a fan of his, but yeah, he's there for the taking. He's there for the taking, and I just don't think you could ever classify this guy as trustworthy. And so if you're going to get him as plus as as a favorite, did you say a line on this fight? I didn't see one. As minus a 180 plus 155. Yeah, I see. I was going to guess 165 to minus 185 for Sean Woodson, but a lot mm-hmm. of that is Bazooki has taken the fight on just a few days notice. So. I'm so tempted to take Sean Woodson. I really want to take Sean Woodson. The fight, this is the fourth guy, so like we haven't had a whole lot of time to look at it. But what I will say to you is uh, Dennis Bazukiev, right? He's on the contender series against Melsuk Begasarian. Goes out there. Begasarian wipes him up pretty good. This kid's out of Sarah Longo fight camp. He's with Marab Devashvili. 
He's with Aljamain Sterling. He's with Matt Frivola. And yet, he's not much of a wrestler. Like, he wants to strike. In fact, when he loses, it's guys are controlling him up against the cage and taking him down. So he does have a striking battle with Melsic, but unfortunately, he gets outstruck by the superior striker, loses the fight, so be it. Fights low-level guys in the regional scene. One and two, seven and five, six and four, back on the contender series. He won his second fight in the contender series. Still didn't get a contract. So this guy's been in the contender series twice. At no point did he wow them enough to say, let's sign him. So back to the regional scene. And yeah, dude, it, m- much of the same. He fought 0-1 right afterwards, 9-5, uh, 7-7, 6-4 and his last time out. So now I'm going to be at the show on Friday calling the action, right? Nashville Underground, looking for a 45-er. Bazooka's manager throws his name in the hat and says, hey, you know what? We see there's three fights on the UFC card at 145. And... Someone could get hurt at 145. Dennis would be the guy. So we're going to put him on the Friday card and he'll fight Friday. And if something happens to one of the 45ers, he'd be good to fight Saturday. So like he's ready, good to go. Thing is, is that they offered him John DeJesus, who's a Bellator veteran, 16 and 11. And uh, he flat out turned to down. Didn't want to fight. So didn't want to fight him. And then coincidentally enough, two weeks later, somebody did get hurt and Dennis gets the fight. So part of me thinks he's been training. The other part of me is thinking he didn't want to take a tough fight. Nobody he's fought outside of the contender series would be considered a tough fight. They've avoided most of the tough fights for him. He's 25. He's young. And being out of a grappling gym, he seems just way more confident striking. If he wants to strike with Woodson, Woodson has the edge on volume. Bazuke has the, the edge on probably like, power uh he is a good striker again if you're hanging in with ray longo you're gonna get good and uh, i think he's got some decent power but i would say 100 percent when given two options one option was fight john de jesus tough guy for two grand <laughs> and if you lose your career gets set back at least a year probably 16 months because you're gonna have to win three more fights getting three fights booked opponents fall out blah 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 waste of time sets you back massively UFC fight against anybody. Who cares who's it's against? Guaranteed $15,000, right? 12000 show money, 3000 from Venom, and a four-fight UFC deal. Who cares if you get smoked? You still got three more fights on the deal. So this is like such a no-brainer for him to jump in there and take it. But is that because he's taking it because he feels ready that he can beat Sean Woodson? Or is he taking it because this is a great opportunity? No repercussion. If I lose, I'll get a full camp. So... I, I say immediately, and I seen the fight announced this morning because it wasn't out when I went to bed last night, but I got up this morning and I seen Woodson versus Dennis. I was like, oh, sweet Jesus. I'd probably be between 165 and 185 Woodson and uh, probably take Woodson. But then, of course, you can't just go with your heart and your gut. Got to go with your eyes, baby. Woodson is just problematic, man. He's massively problematic. He throws a ton of volume, but he, he tires himself out because he doesn't have that one big hitter quitter power. Knocked out Terrence McKinney on the contenders with a flying knee, but most of the time it's like jab, hooks, right hand, a lot of, lot of slapping DS-style techniques, a lot of slapping you up from the outside, but he's not sitting down in a ton of his punches. As a result, he throws up sickening volume, but he tires out in pretty much all of them. You mentioned he gets taken down by everybody. He does. Every single one of his UFC fights, he's been taken down, except for the Colin Anglin one, which was just a quick first-round knockout against a guy that never won in the UFC and then didn't win afterwards either, so... That that fight, sure, it was over before it started, but everybody else has been able to take him down. Not a great look. Julian Arosa, he is a minus 500 favorite against Julian Arosa. Wins the first round, looks good. Tires in the second round, looks awful. Third round, 
curling over. Julian Arosa takes him down, dominates him on the ground, submits him. He's a five to one favorite. Julian Arosa mops the floor with him. Then in his last fight against Luis Saldana, he's a minus 375 favorite over Luis Saldana. Okay. Luis Saldana drops him. Boom. Quick little left hook. Woodson hits the deck. Woodson pops back up and Saldana's smiling. He's got his hands in the air. His coaches are freaking out, man. They're freaking out. They're like, dude, you need to go after him. And he doesn't. And then Woodson looks like he shook it off, comes forward, and Saldana just hits him with one stiff jab. Woodson, boom, hits the deck. Second knockdown of the round. Now at this point, it's like he's he's done. Saldana comes running across the ring and just knees him in the face while he's on the ground. Immediate stop. They give Woodson longer than five minutes to recover, man. They gave him all the time in the world to recover, and they took a point away from Luis Saldana, who had otherwise absolutely killed him. The referee was also running in to stop it. It's just Saldana was faster and outran him to his crumbled opponent and smoked him in the face. Why? Nobody knows why. The main thing, though, is that Woodson got dropped twice. He got dropped hard. He's a 375 favorite again. Chin didn't look all that good. You said, how does he make 145? Excellent question. But being that big and making 145, not good for you. Not good for you. Not good for your brain. Not good for your punch resistance. So I'm not big on his durability. His takedown defense is no good. He's just got volume. That's it. That's all. He was able to come back and win the second and the third round against Saldana. But the second round super close. And honestly, he throws up a triangle choke outside of that sub attempt. You probably score it for Saldana, but close round. And then the third round, you know, he comes through and he, he gets the win. Saldana's tired out. Saldana get, gets lost in the moment. And it's a solid enough win, but I just can't get behind him. If the durability is not there, the takedown defense is not there. You've had four different opponents. Great, but like, who have you gotten ready for? Have you looked at one guy and been like, okay, man, we spent all night watching tape on Butler. And oh, it's, oh, it's not Butler anymore? Who's it now? This Mero Santos, 23-year-old, 13-1 and Brazilian killer? Okay, well, what's he going to do? Okay, leg kicks, leg kicks, leg kicks. That's a new game plan. That's a new plan. No, he's out. Now it's this other guy. That's going to mess with you. Do you go and you have that extra meal? Do you have that extra sip of water? Weight cut was already bad to begin with. And now you're throwing that additional stress on him. He's primed for the taken, baby. He is primed for the taken. And even though I may live to regret this, I'm going to take Dennis Bazuke. All right. That was a roundabout. I didn't think you were going to land there. I thought you were going to end up on Woodson, but it is a roundabout way. I mean, you know, you got Marab and you got uh, Aljo. You can't overstate that. It's like Aljo's in the gym having a title fight uh, camp right now. So it's like if Bazooka is there in the gym, like they are taking it serious right now. At uh, They call it Longo Weidman now. I guess Sarah, Whoa. you know, Sarah has, you know, too much going on with, uh, with his podcasting and stuff and looking for a fight. To, to 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 spend too much or have be a namesake at that gym these days, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's just like it's Killclef FC now, or it's Jackson Wink now. No, no, no. Those gyms were good the way they were. Damn it. Um, but yeah, no, he's in good hands. And then just to add like one little point to your point, uh, Fumi Nakuda, the CFFC champion, out of the gym fighting on the Friday. Yeah, Aljamain Sterling's cornering him on the fight uh, at the fights on Friday. He was already in town. The team was already in town. Dennis was getting ready, hoping a fight would land his way. And one did. So he's in a tough room. Um, yeah, listen, I do like Woodson, but 
I can never bet him as the favorite again. Just I just I just can't do it. All right. Finally, we've got Asu Almabayev taking on Ode Osborne. Minus 200 for Almabayev, plus 170 for Ode. I don't mind this Asu guy. I watched some of his fights on uh, on the regional scene. And it's like some of his opponents weren't that bad in like M1 Global and stuff. Like you look at like some of their records. It's always tough telling with like some of these Russian cards. It's like, well, you know, okay, well, he's 12 and 0 coming into that fight, but what does that really mean? Like they're fighting a bunch of guys with like next to no experience. But what I really did like from watching a little bit of tape is like, I think his, his entries on his takedowns look solid. He looks pretty light on his feet. Like I think this guy looks like a very, very welcomed addition to the flyweight division. Um, there's only a few books that have it open right now, but what I'm considering is uh, is Alma Bayev by submission. Best price right now is plus 300. I'm hoping to... There's a couple other books that tend to open up, and they usually have slightly better prices on those types of props. Al- Alma Bayev, I've seen enough from like his takedown ability. His transition to the back looks super, super solid in some of his fights. I think, yeah, like, you know, it's slightly juiced to the over two and a half. I wouldn't be surprised if Almabayev puts on a wrestling clinic here. Like, I really, really, really like his entries to those takedowns. It's going to be a little bit dangerous. It's a big, probably a pretty significant step up in competition to Osborne, who is a bit of a seasoned vet. You know, it's not always that we see these regional guys come in, take on a guy with as many fights in the UFC as Osborne. And they come in as the favorite, but like I think it's kind of rightful. Um, yeah, I like what I see from this Al- Almabayev kid. So Almabayev by sub is my official pick. What's yours? Yeah, uh, I'm also going to take him. Um, don't know if I get to sub or maybe by decision, but uh, I just I, my problem with these new Kazaki wave of flyweights is just like Zolgus and names shouldn't escape me, but it's probably some crazy Kazakh name. Who is that other guy that fought like? Right after Zalgus got cut. Same bullshit. Close split decision win in his case. Close fight. Contested fight. As a big favorite. They fight super subjective. And he's very much the same. Yeah, he's got some wrestling, right? But it's all like big explosive moves. Shoots in. Gets in tight. Picks you up and slams you. German suplexes you in your head. And then not a whole lot of substance after that. Striking, yeah, very green. He can throw fast. He's got some speed, but he doesn't want to get in any type of big exchange. He doesn't want to fight for too much time standing. It's mostly hit you twice, shoot onto the inside. He smashed pretty much everybody he's fought doing exactly that. But then he runs into Zach Makovsky. Now, Zach Makovsky, UFC veteran, rugged American fighter with American wrestling. And I think that's where you struggled with the wrestling. Uh, he did get a couple takedowns on Mikovsky, struggled to do anything with it. The grappling exchanges were pretty close. Good fight. Split decision winner was Zach Mikovsky, my opinion. Nice, nice. But one has to wonder, like, his striking is not developed yet, and his wrestling, although it's good, it's a lot of jump in, pick you up, toss you to the ground. Judges might like that, but if you're not doing a whole lot, not getting a whole lot of ground and pound, and O'Day's chopping you up standing, could be problematic. Could be a close fight. And I've got one guy making his debut against, you know, a veteran of the division, Odie Osborne. Those are things that uh, would definitely give me cause for concern. So so then I was kind of thinking maybe I, maybe I jump onto Odie Osborne. But here's the real key to me here, Paul, right? Odie Osborne, he's been offensive wrestling a lot more lately, right? You see that Charles Johnson fight. Johnson's beat him up from the outside. He's starting to strike with him. Odie mixes in the takedowns. He's been trying to wrestle, I believe, 
you know, more often than not lately. But look at the guys he's fought, right? He's fought uh, Brian Kelleher, Armando Valario, Jerome Rivera, Manel Kopp, striker, CJ Vergara, crash the pocket in your face, striker, Zaruk Adeshev, pretty much a solely one-dimensional striker, Tyson Nam, super low output, big power, likes to strike, Charles Johnson, just a striker. So all he fights is strikers. And yeah, okay, he can mix in takedowns against them. This kid's not looking to strike with you. Maybe for a little bit. He's looking to take you down. And we've not actually seen O'Day against someone that does that. We've seen him gas with guys playing his game. We've not seen a guy throw him on his back, get on top of him, grind him up against the cage, keep a pace, keep that 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 output, tire him down the legit way. I think this spells bad news for him. Again, good live bet because I think O'Day starts off good the first three minutes, four minutes, maybe the first round. And I think he just starts to tire. And then here's your little your little one extra bit that just lets you know that Ode is not going to win these wrestling exchanges and therefore is probably going to lose his fight. Charles Johnson. Ode Osborne took him down three times. But Charles Johnson actually took down Ode once, spent a minute and a half on top of him. Charles Johnson, in his UFC career, has been taken down 28 times. And he's only taken down one guy, one time, Ode Osborne. Yeah, he's one in 28 in the takedown front. 27 takedown differential. Uh, yeah, Ode's going to have some serious problems with this kid. So it's tough for a debut. He's a big big enough favorite in the bright lights and this and that. But uh, he's got a lot of experience on the regional scene. And as you mentioned, had fought on some pretty decent guys in Russia. So I would say he just wrestle, wrestle, wrestles. Now, I'm thinking more of a decision. But what you said about the submission, yeah, it makes sense too, dude. Because once he tires from all of these grappling exchanges, then it'll probably open up. And uh, yeah, this kid might just snag a hold of that neck and put him away. I liked his transitions to the back. Like I saw that multiple times in the fights that I watched. And to defend Zach Makovsky, who did get submitted like a bunch of times early, early in his career. Like we go back, last time he got submitted was against Dudu Dantas uh, back oh, in yeah. 2012. But like in his, in his follow-up UFC run there, Went to decision against Juicy Formiga. It's like, that's elite jiu-jitsu. If you're on the ground with Formiga, that's that's pretty impressive. Uh, went to decision against Joseph Benavides. Um, and then some, like, other Russian guys that he's going. So it's like, I feel like later on in his he's career, his, his yeah. jiu-jitsu game stepped up. He's 40 years old. He's definitely slow, slower, and, and, and not at the top of his game at that stage. But, yeah, I don't know. I feel like... Uh, right for the taking is Ode Osborne, you know, submitted twice, I believe, already in the UFC. He just hasn't taken on any grapplers recently. And uh, I feel like Asu could definitely exploit that. Waiting for more books is only, yeah, the plus 300 is the best on market. Maybe I'm getting a little bit greedy by waiting, but I'm hoping somebody opens up even slightly better. I'm gonna, I mean, if it, if it ends up being that plus 300 is the best price, I'm still going to take it. But, uh, you know, I'm running the risk that, uh, that that a couple other books that usually do open up props a little bit wider will give me a slightly better price. But, um, yeah, that is mostly it for us this week. Except for Cody Saftik, you got to hit him with the PRP. Hit him with the PRP. We're going to go with Corey Sanhagen, Tatiana Suarez, Dustin Jacoby, dog number one, Gavin Tucker, dog number two. Tanner Bozer, Ignacio Bahamandez, uh, Rowdy Barcellos, dog number three, Carlson Harris, dog number four, Billy Q, Jake Hatley, and Asu Uh 
I thought I had five underdogs. Doesn't matter. Four underdogs, anyways. I like I I could see myself taking Alexa K more, but honestly, there's just not no information or footage or those are the greasy fights. So yeah, that'll end up at the bottom. There was a couple that'll end up at the bottom. But yeah, the main thing is is that it looks like it could be an underdog heavy card. So for parlays, it's all about who you take that's trustworthy at the top. And I haven't quite got there. Ignacio Bahamanes jumps off the screen to me as somebody that I'd like to put up. Corey Sanhagen because it'd be an easy hedge out, but you're not even getting even money with those two picks. So I got a little bit of figuring out to do, but luckily for me, I got nothing to do until my plane leaves at four in the morning. So yeah, I'll keep at it. Hit the right combination. Hopefully go out there. If you are in Tennessee, come out to the show on Friday. Like come to the UFC dope, but if not, come out to the underground show on Friday. If you want to get up for beer, if you want to meet up, whatever. Um, but if you also can't make it out and you're in Tennessee, go to spectationsports.com. You can actually join up there bet on these underground um, Nashville underground fights, which will be a great time. And then you got the UFC. So unfortunately, Canada, not quite with spectation and little Cody doesn't have a U.S. citizenship. So I can't stay. I can't sign up in the state of Tennessee. But if you're in the state of Tennessee, let's make some money, baby. If not that way at the UFC Nashville card. So I'm pumped up. Tough fights to call, but they're all entertaining fights. And as we talked about, every underdog's got a chance. So it'd be an entertaining, fun, nice summer night in the, uh, music city um but yeah i would love to hit some parlays like we did last week and keep the momentum going and the uh just over yeah the prize picks plays that i like the most the, the two that are my favorite would be ignacio bahamandez more than 83.5 significant strikes like the guy crushes 100 uh in most of his fights klein slows down the the pace of a lot of his fights but i think it's very very ripe for the taking quarantillo more than 72.5. I like that Suarez less than 40, 40.5 significant strikes. And I like her under 2.5 takedowns. The other two I like a lot more. But like I feel like Suarez is going to stick to that that takedown, the takedown super, super early. And it's like, I don't know. I think I may be very, very biased. But I think she's going to snatch up a submission pretty early. Uh, Diego Lopez over 40.5 significant strikes. If Gavin Tucker can survive all of the submission attempts from Lopez. You know, they're going to be on the feet some uh, some extended periods of this fight. I think that's definitely in play. Otherwise, yeah, it seems like pretty slim pickings. But, yeah, definitely reach out to Cody uh, out there. Maybe, uh, I mean, you'll be able to bet there. Aren't you able to bet there? I've never been in that. I know. Yeah, I, it, yeah, it, I've I been think in it's legal a couple there. times. You're not able to bet there? You can you can bet there, but you can't bet like my book is illegal there. So like I can't access the domain. I can change my VPN, I'm sure. Do it that way. But uh yeah, I don't know. I haven't had success in the in the past with it. <clears throat> I think they can bet. I think a lot of them play DraftKings, that's legal there as well. But uh I'm not sure. There's no casinos. You can't go to a casino. There's yeah. like none of that exists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when people say like what's Nashville like it's like it's just like Vegas, less gambling, way more country music. But like it's it's a music scene. There's a great vibe. There's a lot of cool people. You got that like southern hospitality. Vegas, they're all degenerates or just gambling, and and uh, those are kind of like more my people. But but first time I went to Nashville was awesome. I ended up going there on my honeymoon like six months later because I enjoyed it so much. And then when I saw this card jump up, I kind of messaged them. I'd be open to coming out. They were like, you know what? Let's have you do the play by play on it. So uh, everything did work out. But I, I, I love Tennessee. I love uh, the Southern United States. So if you live in Tennessee, 
particularly Nashville, Tennessee, and you happen to be going to those fights, you may or may not be able to allegedly help Cody Cody out um, if you're an honorable person. That's all I'm saying, you know? That's all I'm saying. If maybe, you maybe he'll, run maybe into he'll release PRPs to you in advance when he gets back home. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that the opportunity to network and become buddies with one of the legends of picking fights would potentially maybe be there if you catch my drift. And and just like a Where's Waldo situation, if uh, come find me. And if you do find me, I do a shoey for you right there and then and there, baby. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm excited to uh, mingle with the people. But also, yeah, yeah, enjoy myself. Go see some live fights, live UFC fights. I see live fights entirely too often. But live UFC fights that I don't have to work, sweet. Um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm pumped up for it. All right. That is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show for producer Megan and Cody Saftik. I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Oh.